Hello, my name is Adrian Goldberg and welcome to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times, it's what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. This time, the TUC's We Demand Better march and rally in central London. It comes at a time when workers are facing severe pressures as a result of the cost of living crisis. They, we, are having to deal with double-digit inflation. And despite record numbers of job vacancies and low unemployment, average wages in the UK have fallen at the fastest rate for more than two decades. Annual pay rises, excluding bonuses, are lagging behind increasing prices by 4.5%. The impact of the cost of living crisis is affecting our members terribly. We're seeing nurses, teachers, care workers turn to food banks. We're hearing from members working across the country that they're not sure if they can keep putting food on the table, roof over their head, pay their soaring electricity bills, put petrol in their car. In some cases, to get to and from work. It's really affecting people. More from Sean Elliott from the TUC shortly. First, though, just a reminder that the Byline Times podcast is funded by subscriptions to the Byline Times, our brilliant monthly newspaper. When you take out a subscription to the Byline Times, you're supporting some of the best independent journalism around. This podcast, Byline Radio, Byline TV and our newsbreaking website as well. We don't have a wealthy proprietor in the background pulling our strings, so we can report without fear or favour. But that relies on your contributions, so please subscribe if you can. You'll get more details at bylinetimes.com. That's at bylinetimes.com. And if you've already taken out a subscription, thank you. Now, the TUC is the umbrella body for trade unions in the UK, speaking for around 5.5 million workers. And while their influence has declined over recent decades, the result of sustained attacks on organised labour that began with the Thatcher government, they are still a powerful voice in British politics. Ahead of the We Demand Better march and rally in London, I caught up with their policy officer, Sean Elliott, to discuss the longer-term ambitions of the TUC, including a four-day working week and a minimum wage of £10 an hour. First, though, what's the purpose of the march and rally? Tens of thousands of people from across the country will be coming together to demand better. That means better pay, it means better working conditions, it means an end to fire and rehire tactics like we saw at P&O. And it means better from this government. They have the power to alleviate many of the problems that those at the sharp end of this cost of living crisis are experiencing. We need a boost to the national minimum wage. We need a boost to universal credit and pension credits. And we need stronger employment rights so that employers can't just treat their employees with casual disregard in the way that we're seeing in many workplaces across the country. But the government might say the causes of inflation are not in their control. It was Putin's Russia that invaded Ukraine. That's caused a lot of this inflation, pushing up petrol prices. They can't do anything about that, can they? So the source of rising inflation is absolutely supply chain disruption owing to the pandemic, owing to Brexit. It's to do with soaring energy prices that's exacerbated by the crisis in Ukraine but it's also driven by stagnating wages. Pay has failed to keep pace with the cost of living. And that's happened over the last decade, the period in which the Conservative government have presided. 
and it's due to their lack of action. And in fact, in the public sector, it's due to their very active decision to hold down the pay of public sector workers. And that's left millions of working families without the financial resilience to withstand the kind of economic shock we're seeing at the moment. But we are where we are, aren't we? And if workers get additional pay, that will either lead to price increases in the shops, further increasing inflation, or it will lead to additional taxes if those workers are in the public sector, which will reduce the amount of money that other people have to spend in the economy. So it is a difficult situation for any government to face. The impact of the cost of living crisis is affecting our members terribly. We're seeing nurses, teachers, care workers turn to food banks. We're hearing from members working across the country that they're not sure if they can keep putting food on the table, roof over their head, pay their soaring electricity bills, put petrol in their car, in some cases to get to and from work. It's really affecting people. It's causing them huge amounts of worry. We know that children are going hungry. We're really worried about the summer holidays that are coming up. How are some families going to be able to cope when they're needing to keep their children entertained and fed around the clock for for six or eight weeks? You take my point, though, that without increased productivity, extra pay can only be paid for by increasing prices or increasing taxes. We are teetering on the brink of a recession. What we need to do is keep the economy going. What the, how you can help do that is by making sure that public sector workers have enough money in their pocket, not only to meet their bills, to get put petrol in the car to get to and from work, but to be able to go out and spend that money in their local high street, in shops, in restaurants. That keeps the private sector economy going. And we can make sure that everybody within the economy is able to have money in their pocket to be keep on spending you keep up that consumer demand the last thing we need right now is for workers to do what they're having to do which is completely cut back on all their spending in order to meet those day-to-day essentials because that will just cause our economy to shrink and we will absolutely tip into recession What hope have you got that by turning thousands of people out onto the streets and making a lot of noise in central London, that you will actually shift this government, a government that is ideologically predisposed, particularly when it comes to the public sector, to not want to give you large pay increases? We know that when we come together, we can win. And we've seen that in workplaces across the country where workers have been taking action on a more localised level and winning real terms pay rises. But we know that also when we come together, we win with this government. This is a government that does multiple U-turns. And we saw that most recently when the Chancellor delivered his spring statement and then returned to Parliament less than two months later to deliver an emergency budget. And unions and our members led the call for that emergency budget because we said this was not good enough. And the packages he announced were immediate kind of relief to some families but did absolutely nothing to tackle the the real systemic causes of this cost of living crisis and to get that financial resilience to families but we know that we can move this government we know it's a government that will feel that pressure and that's why we're going to be out on Saturday with tens of thousands of our members this is about 
making sure that workers are paid what they're owed. A pay award, anything short of the cost of living, is actually a real terms pay cut. Public sector pay last month fell by over £131 in real terms compared to the same month the previous year. This is about workers not actually pay rising, but pay keeping pace, breaking even. In terms of your broader ambitions for the workplace, you're looking at a four-day week. When and how feasible do you think that will be? Four-day week is a really core part of what we see as something achievable in the next decade or so. We know that in the previous century, people were working six days a week and they said we couldn't get, unions couldn't get a two-day weekend and we got it. And we know that working five days a week, the nine to five, being chained to an office desk is not how many businesses or workers want to do business. And we know it's not the most productive way. We're all about how can we make sure that workers get the work-life balance they need, that they're motivated, they're productive, because when your workforce are motivated, when they're productive, that's better for business all round. And what I think the four-day week has come to, to be a symbol of is that push that we've seen during the pandemic. Workers want more flexibility. For too long, it's been flexibility that works one way. It works for bosses, whether that's about zero hours contracts or whether that's about we want to be able to change your shifts at short notice. What we want to see is a real reckoning with that balance of power and it become much more equal between the worker and the employer. At the moment, we have labour shortages. I kind of think if you have a four day week, obviously you'd hope that people might be a bit more productive in the workplace, but you might also need more people to do the jobs. Where are they going to come from? I think with a four-day week, it's all about sitting down, planning, and thinking about how that works best for your business. There are many jobs, and we saw that during the pandemic with key workers, where people work long, maybe 12-hour shifts instead of the typical sort of seven, eight-hour shifts, where people work nights, weekends. We know lots of workers in the economy aren't working this kind of typical office nine to five. And so it's absolutely about unions, employers, getting around the table and thinking about how does this work for our business? How do we make this work in our workplace? And I think that will look different in every workplace. This isn't a uh, unions demanding a kind of imposition of, of, of particular way of working. It's about sitting around the table, thinking about what's best for business, what's best for workers, and coming to that negotiated agreement on that. At the moment, the minimum wage in the UK, it's called the National Living Wage now, is 9.50 an hour. Where do you see that ending up? We want to see a boost to the national minimum wage because we know that for many families, £9.50 an hour is not enough to get by. We want to see that being raised in line with with, um, rising cost of living. We want to make sure that there is a floor that every worker is able to make sure they've got enough money at the end of the day, not only to survive, to keep food on the table, but also to be able to go on a summer holiday when they want to once a year to be able to afford to have the money if there's a sudden if their boiler breaks if their car breaks down that they're able to have a bit of financial resilience and we know that for many of those working on the national so-called living wage that isn't possible because that rate is far too low 
that definitely needs an immediate boost. But alongside that, we also need to boost universal credit and other benefits because we know that our social security system has been cut to the bone in recent years and many families are stuck between the two working on a national minimum wage, relying on universal credit to top up that really uh, inadequate wage that they're receiving at work. That can't be right. People going to work should receive a decent pay for a fair day's work. You're calling for a a £10 an hour national minimum wage and the end of what you describe as discrimination against young workers. So presumably that means no grade distinction in pay depending on your age, which currently happens at the moment, doesn't it? You can get a a lower wage at 16, 17, 18 and so on. You can get a lower wage if you're an 18-year-old worker who might be living away from home, is having to pay their bills, their rent, their utilities, just the same as any other worker. And it's wrong that they should be paid less than their colleagues who may be four years older than them doing exactly the same job, but they're allowed to be discriminated against. We think everybody should be included in that national minimum wage because they don't get a discount when they're paying their utility bill. They don't get a discount when they're topping up their car and putting petrol in. They don't get a discount when they go to the shops, when they go to their local supermarket and say, oh, well, actually, I'm allowed to be paid less than Joe Bloggs behind me in the queue. And we think that's wrong. Although arguably they are more of a risk because they're less experienced than an older worker. So paying them less might be an incentive to hiring them. I think we can all think of examples where just because somebody's been around a bit longer, it doesn't necessarily mean they're any better at their job. No, but you take my point. Part of the attraction to some employers of hiring younger people, perhaps giving them their first job, is the fact that they will cost a little bit less. I think that younger workers are extremely motivated. They want to get on. They're keen to learn. And that's a lot of what they offer. They they may have new ideas. They're motivated. So I don't see that employers will suddenly, if if we raise that floor of the national minimum wage, think, oh, no, we're not going to hire this 18-year-old. Because let's be honest, when you're interviewing somebody, you don't know actually whether they're 23 or 25, which is the difference um, around at which they'd be paid a different rate. Employers won't really know that. Um, It's only once it goes through to payroll and HR that you realise, oh, we can pay them a different wage. So I don't think it would change employer behaviour, but it would make a huge difference to those young workers who are being discriminated against. In the coming weeks, we're going to see industrial action on the railways, 40,000 staff at Network Rail and 13 different train companies going on strike. You know that that will be used by opponents of the trade union movements to raise the spectre of a return to the bad old days of the 1970s. We've seen with recent scandals like the P&O scandal, what happens when workers don't have their collective bargaining rights in the workplace, when employers are allowed to just trash them in the way that P&O were. That was a unionised workforce. They were sacked on the spot because of the good pay in terms and conditions that their union had organised. And the employer actively wanted to get rid of that, to hire in uh, workers from overseas, pay them well below the national minimum wage. And the government let them do that. We know that what unions and their members want is for employers to sit round the table to agree fair terms, fair paying conditions. But when workers are under attack 
And in many of the ways that we're seeing across the economy, from rail to the P&O to other areas, we know workers' rights, their pay are being attacked. Then workers, of course, have a right to expect to defend themselves. And that's exactly what's happening here. The preference is always to get employers and unions round the table. And that's not happening. But that is not for a lack of trying from the unions. In the case of P&O, of course, you have a a loss-making company, a significant loss-making company. What options would you prefer to see companies in that situation use rather than effectively the fire and rehire model or the fire and hire somebody else model that P&O used? If businesses aren't built on a sustainable model, that's to do with the business failure from the very top. We've seen it in uh, other areas of the economy, in on-service demand economy areas. We've seen with many of those uh, like Uber and other areas where business models have been built on exploiting the workforce, making sure people get, the consumer gets a cheap go in or on the back of paying workers a really low wage. And what we know is that's not sustainable because when demand for jobs is high, people will have to put up with that. But once demand drops, and that's very natural in economy, we'll always have waves where it goes up and down. People will not put up with being exploited in the way that they have been historically. And so I think it's all about, from the very start, employers saying, we need a motivated, well-paid, committed workforce. And the way to do that is through decent pay, terms and conditions. And if your business model is built on the back of exploiting workers, you have to appreciate that there'll come a day when those workers will say, well, this isn't for us anymore. Why are people being allowed to use uh, our cheap services on the back of, of, of us? And what we see is that people have to take on multiple jobs or they're getting into financial difficulty, debt. They're not able to keep a roof over their head. They're struggling to pay their bills. That can't be right. And that's not a sustainable business model. You call for union protection and the right to union protection in this day and age it seems astonishing to me that we'd even be talking about that are workers really denied union rights in 2022 we know that workers are still fighting to get union recognition in their workplaces you only need to look to the most recent historic cases where gmb have fought to get recognition at uber in the courts and have recently got recognition at Deliveroo. We know that that's happening at scale across the economy, less so in the public sector where we've got a really well unionised workforce, but we know that outsourcing in the public sector is a real threat to that, that private sector companies coming in, taking those public contracts, they don't want unions involved because they don't want to be having to treat their workforce with decent pay and decent conditions. And we know across the private sector, it's a real issue too. But unions will continue to fight for every worker to be recognised. And that's why we want the government to make sure that there are stronger rights for working people so that they can be recognised by a union in their workplace if they want to. Do you feel that the campaigns that you're running as the TUC have the backing of the Labour Party under Keir Starmer? We work really closely with the Labour Party. We work with government too. We will always seek to influence those who have the power to change the lives of our members and workers across the economy. Sean Elliott answering a question about a politician with, I think you'll agree, a politician's answer. 
Sean Elliott from the TUC and my thanks to her. I'm Adrian Goldberg and this has been the Byline Times podcast funded by subscriptions to the Byline Times. Find out how to subscribe at bylinetimes.com. That's at bylinetimes.com. And also check out the Bylines app on your smartphone, opening up the world of our fantastic regional bylines as well. Thanks for listening. See you next time.